Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 26, verses 8 through 29. If you'd like to refer to the passage during the pastor's sermon, you'll find it beginning on page 1107, 1107 in the Pew Bibles, begins in the uh, lower right-hand column. Acts 26, verses 8 through 29. Why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I, too, was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the vision from heaven, first to those in Damascus, then to those in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and then to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some of the Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here and testify to small and great alike. I am not saying anything beyond what the prophets and Moses would have would, said would happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Then 
Agrippa said to Paul, you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replied, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. Thank you, Randy. There is something about the way <clears throat> that I drink my morning coffee that reminds me of why I need Jesus. Every morning, I, I get up and I come downstairs and I turn on my Keurig machine uh, because I'm the only one in my house that drinks coffee. Caffeine messes my, gets my wife's heart rate up. Uh, and my two- and three-year-old just haven't acquired a taste for it yet. So I don't brew a whole pot. I just, just make my own cup of coffee. And there's something about the way I drink my morning coffee that reminds me of why I need Jesus. Uh, because when I drink my morning coffee, I don't like to leave the kitchen. Uh, I, don't, I don't like to take my coffee upstairs. Uh, sometimes you have to. Sometimes I can't spend all morning in the kitchen. So I have to. But I'd rather not leave the kitchen and go to the living room or or go upstairs, or even come over to the church. Uh, I, and, and the reason why is because I don't like to guzzle my coffee. I don't know about you all, but I like, I like to sip it, you know? I like to savor it. I like to enjoy uh, each sip. Um, but the, the problem is, here's what I've discovered, um, is that, I don't know if you have this experience or not, but my coffee gets cold. I don't know if it's the same in your kitchen, but that's what happens in mine. When, when I leave that coffee out in the, in the mug... Um, it, it, it gets cold, and I don't like cold coffee, right? So I have to be in the kitchen so I can put it in the microwave to, to get it warm. Now, uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but why is it, why is it that, that coffee, if you leave it out on the table, why does it get cold, right? Interesting question. I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, and I'll tell you why. One word. You ready for this? Entropy. Entropy. Uh, entropy is a word that physicists use, and it's a word that refers to the second, uh, second law of thermodynamics. Everybody here familiar with the second law of thermodynamics? Well, well let me explain it to you. I know the, the, the engineers and scientists are thinking, really, the pastor is going to explain the second law of thermodynamics? Well, I tell you what, I'll make a deal with you. If you don't laugh at my explanation of the second law of thermodynamics, I promise not to laugh at your explanation of the difference between an expiatory and propitiatory atoning sacrifice. Fair enough? And uh, if you don't know what a propitiatory or expiatory atoning sacrifice is, you can Google it. Uh, after all, that's where I learned about the second law of thermodynamics, right? All right, so what is the second law of thermodynamics? Well, actually, what's interesting is that uh, according to NASA's website, uh, the second law of thermodynamics when, uh, can be explained in a number of different ways, that that scientists will explain the law differently depending on what physics issue they're dealing with. So they'll explain it differently uh, depending on what the context is. Does that sound familiar? Well, what I realize is that the second law of thermodynamics is a lot like the gospel. One of the things that we found as we've been moving through the book of Acts is, 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 that, uh, is that, that when they would share the gospel, they would always share it the same. They would share it differently in Jerusalem uh, that as when, when they would share it in Athens, they would share it differently depending on who they're with. They would take the context into account. 
And it seems like the same thing is true with the second law of thermodynamics. Um, that you, depending on your context, you might explain it a little bit differently. So I'm going to explain it in a way that helps me to get to my point. Which at this point, you're, you're beginning to wonder, does he actually have a point? But I do, so hang with me here. Here's the second law of thermodynamics. Here's what it is. It states that in a closed system, the amount of available energy to do work is decreasing and becoming uniformly distributed. That's pretty good. Is that all right? Uh, Second law of thermodynamics, in a closed system, the amount of energy uh, that is available to do work uh, is is decreasing and becoming uniformly distributed. Right? So let me explain what this means. You see, how does this apply? Well, in my cup of coffee, what that means is that the amount of energy that is available to do work, and in this case to keep, keep it you know, piping hot, uh, the amount of energy that's available to do that is decreasing and becoming uniformly distributed in a closed system. Right? A closed system is where there's no new energy uh, being entered into the system, right? which is why I have to put it in the microwave to put more energy into the system. But that's to counteract what is a fundamental law of the universe. Another way of saying this is that everything burns out. Everything burns out. Every source of light, every source of heat, everything burns out. The sun will burn out. Apparently it's on half, half empty, half half full. That's what I'm told. Don't worry, we've got billions of years left. But it's on half, right? But it, it, will, it will burn out. This is a, a fundamental law of the universe. Everything, everything burns out. I, I grew up in Wyoming. We would go camping, and uh, we'd get the campfire going, right? And, and the fire would be burning, and, and, and then sometimes at night we'd be lazy and not be very, uh, you know, you're not supposed to do this, actually, because wind can come and introduce new energy into a closed system and cause all kinds of problems. But we, we would just, uh, we would leave the, the fire burning and then you'd go to sleep and, and, and then when you wake up in the morning, it's gone. It would burn out. Everything burns out. Uh, so sometimes this is a good thing. <clears throat> uh, like, like, when you, like when your children just won't stop running around the living room uh, screaming and making fire truck noises. Right? And you're like, is this ever going to end? Right? I mean, are they just going to keep doing this? And then, and then finally, my son, eventually, over time, I'll look over and, and I'll see him, and he's, he's, he's laying on the floor, still moving his truck, making, making uh, fire truck noises while his eyes are closed. Because everything burns out. Today, we're finishing up our series on the book of Acts, a series we are calling Living as Missionaries. And the central thesis of this whole series, as you you know, is that as Christians, every single one of us is called and indeed has the opportunity to live as a missionary. That that, that missionaries aren't the special forces uh, of the church. They're not the the elite group and then there's everybody else. No, everybody is called. All Christians are called and have the opportunity to live as missionaries. And and one of the, the things that we discover as we come to this passage, we'll see it again, and one of the things that we've seen as we've gone through the the book of Acts is the extent to which we're called to live as missionaries, and what we discover is is that we're we're called to give our very lives for the sake of the mission, 
We find throughout the book of Acts, the, the early church, basically what the book of Acts is, is it, it chronicles uh, the, the, the history of the early church. Well, what happened after the first Easter? What did the followers of Jesus do after the first Easter in the, in the coming years? What, what, what did they do? And so it chronicles that, and what we discover is that they were willing to even give their lives for the sake of the mission. And we find the same thing here as we come to this passage, that the reason why Paul is where he is in this passage um, is because there is a growing number of people that want to get him killed. So let me kind of set the context here. So if you go back uh, a couple of chapters, chapter 21 and 22 in Acts, you find Paul getting arrested in Jerusalem. He gets arrested by the religious authorities. They are not happy uh, with, with what he's doing as a missionary, so, so they arrest him. But fortunately for Paul, um, at this time, uh, the local uh, authorities there, religious authorities, didn't actually have uh, jurisdiction to do anything. Uh, the, the Romans actually had jurisdiction, and so, so he is, well, the, the Roman commander uh, takes Paul in, um, and, but then the, the, the Roman commander realizes that Paul isn't safe in Jerusalem, even in his custody, that there are plans to ambush Paul. So he realizes we got to get this, we got to get this guy out of here until we can figure out what all of this is about. So he sends Paul up to Caesarea where this takes place. And when he comes to Caesarea, then he stands before Felix and Festus. Uh, Felix and and Festus uh, came after Felix, kind of took his position, uh, succeeded him. And and, um, uh, Felix and Festus they actually had Pontius Pilate's old job. They had Pontius Pilate's old job, governor of, of the area, Roman procu- procurator. They had Pilate's old job. And it's actually interesting because you, when you see Paul's trials before Felix and Festus, there are some striking similarities between Paul's trial and between, before them and Jesus' trial before Pilate. What we discover is that in both cases, both with Jesus and with Paul, they were innocent of their charges. But in both cases, the Roman procurator uh, wanted to do a favor for the locals and so didn't want to, because they all wanted to to kill them, right? And so they they didn't want to release them. So Pilate didn't want to release Jesus and Felix and Festus. They don't want to release Paul either. And Festus actually starts talking about sending Paul back to Jerusalem to be tried. And this is actually the point where what Paul does is he appeals to his Roman citizenship. He says, look, I'm a Roman citizen. You can't do this. He appeals to Caesar. And so Festus then has no choice but to send Paul to Rome, and, and that happens later. But in the meantime, before he sends him to Rome, uh, Festus is thinking, you know what? Uh, I'd kind of like to get King Agrippa's take on this deal. Now, who's King Agrippa? King Agrippa had come to kind of pay respects to, to Festus because uh, Festus had become the Roman procurator. So, so Agrippa comes to pay him respects. Who's King Agrippa? Well, King Agrippa was, was King Herod's great-grandson. This is King Herod's great-grandson. Now, King Herod, uh, he, if you think back to, to, to when Jesus was born, actually, King Herod ruled this whole region. He, he ruled Palestine and north, and he ruled a large re- region. But by the, the time this takes place with Paul, uh, the Romans weren't letting the Israelites rule their own land. Uh, they gave uh, Her- uh, Agrippa had had authority over a northern region, northern Galilee, and above that, he actually also had uh, the the responsibility of appointing the high priest in Jerusalem. So he had the point of, of uh, responsibility of appointing the high priest, even though he didn't actually have control over the region. Anyway, maybe that's more than you wanted to know. Anyway, so so King Agrippa comes down to pay respects to 
this, this Roman procurator. And, and, and Festus is like, you know what, actually, I'd kind of like to hear what this guy has to say. Because King Agrippa was half Jewish, and he was also known for having uh, a, a, a good knowledge of the Jewish law. So that, that, that's what sets the stage for Paul coming before King Agrippa. And in the beginning of his kind of address to King Agrippa, he, Paul talks about his background and how he used to be a Pharisee, one of the, the strict uh, sects within Judaism, until he had this encounter with Jesus. Until Jesus came and revealed himself to him, and, and then that changed everything. And that leaves us where we are in this passage. And, and it's kind of interesting because at the end of this whole deal, what ends up happening is King Agrippa's ends up saying, you know what, this guy really is innocent. We should just let him go. He hasn't done anything. But it's interesting because you think to yourself, you know, if Paul, if Paul really wanted to get off, there would have been a whole lot, there would have been easier ways for him to do this. It would have been very simple for Paul. If he, if he didn't, I mean, he's, he's getting threatened. He's being ambushed. Uh, people want to get him killed. It would have been very easy for him. Aside from just appealing to Caesar, something would have been even easier. And you know what it would have been? Is he could have just stopped telling people about Jesus. He could have just stopped. I mean, he'd been doing this for years. And he's, he's the, 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 you know, the tension is mounting. It would have been really easy. I mean, it was pretty simple. Tell people about Jesus, and you're going to risk uh, getting killed. Uh, don't tell people about Jesus, and everybody will leave you alone. So the question is, Why? Why was Paul so stubborn? Why was he so resilient about telling people about Jesus? And here's why. Because Paul understood that Jesus is the light that doesn't burn out. Jesus is the light that doesn't burn out. He recounts his encounter with Jesus, and Jesus says to him, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. And then because he's talking to King Agrippa, who is half Jewish, he goes on to point out, that this is what the scriptures had always predicted would, would happen. I am saying nothing beyond what the prophets and Moses said would happen, that the Christ would suffer, and as the first to rise from the dead, would proclaim, would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. Paul's saying the whole reason why I'm willing to risk my life is because Jesus is the light that doesn't burn out. Now, it's at this point where... Festus goes, uh, excuse me, crazy. You notice this? Festus, the Roman procurator, he doesn't know what to think of these people. And he's like, wait a minute. Festus interrupted, verse 24. You are out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Now, it's interesting. Why is, uh, what, what does Festus think is crazy? What does he think is so insane? Well, there's probably two things that Festus thinks is crazy. Two things. The first thing is he probably thinks it's insane, this whole idea that the Jews and the Gentiles could be reconciled. You see, Paul alludes to that in in verse 23. He says that the Christ would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light to his own people and to the Gentiles. And he's kind of alluding 
to reconciliation here. And Festus would have thought this is crazy, this idea that the Jews and the Gentiles could be reconciled. Festus, we don't know a lot about Festus or what he knew about the early church, but he would have been shocked to discover that in the early church, Paul, these little communities that are popping up, he would have been absolutely shocked to discover that Jews and Gentiles were having meals together. He would have been shocked to discover that Jews and Gentiles were treating one another as family. They were calling each other brother and sister. Festus would have been absolutely shocked to discover that that's what was going on in the early church because everything else in in that region, the relationship between Jews and Gentiles was going completely the other direction. This whole scene takes place probably within 10 years of the Jewish revolt when the Jews actually rebelled against the Romans and there was this four-year war against the Romans where eventually the Romans came in and and conquered Jerusalem. So, So tensions were high and Festus, this idea that Jews and Gentiles could be reconciled, that's crazy. That's crazy talk. But, of course, there's a second thing that Festus probably thought was crazy, too. This whole idea that Jesus came back from the dead. I, I, I'm sure Festus thought that was crazy. And you know why I think Festus probably thinks or thought that was crazy? is because my guess is that he has the same experience when he drinks his morning coffee. That's my guess. When Festus would get up in the morning and go downstairs and turn on his Keurig machine, make himself a cup of coffee, I'm sure he probably discovered, he probably knew that, you know, if you leave it out, it it burns out. Uh, Not as fast as in Rivervale. Caesarea is about 18 degrees warmer uh, than Rivervale. Uh, so maybe not, you know, took a little bit longer, but, but he knew that that's just, that's how, how it works. And he knows that you leave a cup of coffee out, it burns out. And what he would have known is that as it is for a cup of coffee, so it is for a human being. Like that's people, they burn out and they, they don't come back to life. Just as sure as your coffee gets cold and burns out. Human beings, when they, they burn out, you know. I mean, I, and I think there's this conception in our culture that, that people back then were really kind of ignorant, and, and I've said this before, but, you know, that they would have, well, you know, they were kind of ignorant back then, so they probably would have been you know, very easily believed that Jesus came back from the dead. And I like to remind us, I don't know if you know this or not, but Einstein, Newton, none of those guys, none of them published papers that said, hey, guess what? You're never going to believe this. But we have discovered that if you die, you don't come back to life. That isn't a modern scientific discovery. I mean, we, we've done that. I mean, just like, just like nobody published a paper that said, hey, we've discovered that if you leave your coffee out, um, it, it's going to get cold. I mean, what scientists do is they'll explain, well, they'll tell you it's because of entropy. It's because of the second law of thermodynamics. And a scientist will tell you, well, that, you know, you die because of lack of oxygen to the brain, all this kind of stuff. But they didn't discover that, 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 that human beings die and don't come back from the grave. People knew that back then just as well as we do now. And so people back then, Festus would have been just as suspicious and skeptical as anybody today. Paul's response, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. It's true and reasonable. He's like, 
He's saying, actually, Festus, there are, there are good reasons to believe that this is true. When he's talking to King Agrippa, he says, you know, Agrippa, there's good reasons for you to believe this because the Old Testament scriptures, they point to this. They point to this. And you, so you should not be surprised by this. Now, in the book of 1 Corinthians, where Paul is writing to a, a group where it wouldn't have just been Jews, it would have been Gentiles as well, um, he doesn't tell them, you know, you, you, you should believe this because the Bible says this because, you know, a bunch of people in Corinth, a bunch of Gentiles, they don't really give a rip what the Bible says at all. So he takes a different approach. And what he says in 1 Corinthians is he says, look, you need to understand that when Jesus rose from the grave, he appeared to f- over 500 people. They saw him. They, they were with him. You can actually go talk to them. And Paul's saying, look, th- this, is, this isn't crazy. This is true and, and reasonable. Starting next week, we're going to begin a new series. And the whole series is really to, to try to show that it, it's, it is absolutely reasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the grave. I would suggest it is the most reasonable thing to believe. We're going to be looking at, at barriers. The series is called Barriers, and we're going to be looking at various barriers, intellectual barriers that people have that, that hinder them from embracing the faith. And my hope is to demonstrate throughout this series that it is reasonable to believe that Jesus rose from the grave. And this is what Paul wants them to say. This, this isn't crazy talk. This is, this is reasonable. Uh, you know, they, w- when this is recorded, it doesn't probably record everything that was said, but, you know, Paul, Paul alludes to the fact, or he says, look, you know, I, I used to be where you are, Festus. I mean, I was actually persecuting these people. I mean, I know, I get it. I thought it was crazy too, but, but I've come to see that this, this is true and reasonable, and, and I'm so convinced of it that I'm willing to give my life for it. Why is Paul going to such great extents to be on mission for God? Because he has come to discover that Jesus is the light that doesn't burn out. And what that means, you see, is that every else burns out. Everything else burns out. So the question I want to put to you today is, what source of light are you looking to, to provide light for your life? Because if you are looking to anything other than Jesus, that light will burn out. If you look to anything other than Jesus, that light ultimately will burn out. What are you looking to? What's that source of light, that thing that you look to to give you light in your life? Maybe it's things. Maybe it's stuff. Maybe it's material things that you look to to give you life, to give you light. And so, you know, when you get into a budget meeting with your spouse and and it's determined that the finances just aren't quite where they were last month, so you're going to have to spend less money on your clothes, new clothes. You're going to have to not eat out as much. Uh, You know, let me ask you something. Is it like a dark cloud comes over you? Is it just like darkness just seeps in? What's going on? Your light has just burned out. What is it that you're looking to? Well, what is it that you're looking to in this world 
as your light. Maybe it's success. Maybe it's success. Success in school, uh, success in your career. Uh, could even be success in parenting. Success, whatever it's in. You see, you've got to understand if success is what you're looking to, to give you light, it's, it's never going to be bright enough. It's never going to be bright enough. You're always going to feel like you're not quite there. You're always going to feel like you're not being successful enough. It's always going to feel a little bit too dim. And you know what? Eventually, it's, it's going to burn out. You know, it's amazing to me all the, the kinds of things that we look to for sources of light in our lives. I mean, think there's so many. I'll, I'll give you a kind of interesting example. Uh, there was... a. A sociologist, Robert Fernquist, I think was his name, Central Missouri, and he, he turned on the TV one day, and he saw a grown man sobbing on television. And he assumed that it was probably some sort of a terrorist attack, something like that, that this is why this man, was, we're letting the light in, you see, that's what's going on here. He assumed that, that some sort of tragedy had taken place, and it turned out, as he turned up the volume and he listened to what was going on, it turned out what happened was this guy was a Cleveland Browns fan. And the Cleveland Browns had been relocated to a new city. This man was bawling his eyes out. So, uh, so th- it kind of got this guy thinking about this. So he, he did some research on the effects of professional sports on the health of a community. And he looked at four professional sports teams in four different cities that had relocated. And what he discovered is that in the year after they relocated, get this, there was a a dramatic increase in suicides in those cities. And and then he looked looked at uh, when when France won the World Cup in 1998. For the next month, the suicide rate dropped by 10%. But only for a month. Why? Why? Because everything burns out. Everything burns out. I believe I'm a Patriots fan. You know, even Tom Brady burns out. I mean, right? If if you're looking to something to give you a source of light, no no matter how much it gives you, no matter what it gives you, eventually it's going to burn out. What are you looking to? Maybe you're looking to relationships, human relationships. Maybe you're here today and maybe years ago, years ago you had a, li- a relationship that faltered. It might be 20 years ago, 25 years ago, and whether it faltered for good reasons or bad reasons, the reality is there has just been this dark cloud over your life. And you can't shake it. You can't shake the darkness that came from that broken relationship. Why, what's going on? Relationships, that, that was the light that you were looking to, and that light burned out. And here's what you need to understand. Every relationship ultimately burns out. You see, even the best relationships, even those Marriages that just get better and better and better every year. Here's what you need to realize. There will come a day when one of you has to bury the other person. And if that's your source of light, now your light has burned out. Jesus 
is the only light that doesn't burn out. And you see, if you look to anything else as your source of light, not only will it burn out, but it actually burns everything else out. If you look to anything else as your source of light, not only does it burn out, but it'll burn everything else out too. You see, because it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a little bit like when you, when you build a campfire, right? And, well, how do you keep the light going? Well, you just have to keep sacrificing logs on that fire to keep it burning. So you see, if your career is your source of light, uh, to keep that thing burning, you've, you've got to keep throwing logs on there. And what that tends to be is your family uh, and your friends uh, and your community. But you have to just keep stoking it because if you don't, guess what? Everything burns out. Right? I mean, even, even if you don't have a job and, and you're, you're so consumed by, if you have a job, you're consumed by your job. If you don't have a job, you're consumed by the fact you don't have a job. But if that's your source, then you're so consumed by that that everybody suffers because you have to sacrifice them in order to, to fuel that fire. Right? I mean, if, if finances, if, if stuff, stuff, material things, if that's, if that's your source of light, again, well, what's going to get sacrificed? Sorry, kid, no, no, no lunch money today. What are you going to do? You've got to sacrifice something to keep, keep feeding it because otherwise it's, it's going it's to burn out. In fact, even in relationships, if, if, you're, if you're marriage, if, you're, if that's your light, if that's what you're looking to, you know what you're probably going to end up doing is burning your spouse out. Because you're, you're expecting that relationship to give you that light. You're expecting them to give you something they were never intended to give. See, the things of this world, they were never meant to be sources of light. They were meant to reflect light. You see, the problem is that we treat things in this world like the sun when we need to be retreating them like the moon. Ever thought about that? I mean, the moon, the moon shines bright. The moon shines bright. But you know what? The moon's light is it's never going to burn out. Well, until the sun burns out. But it, it doesn't, you know... It just, it just reflects the light. It doesn't have to consume anything. It doesn't have to sacrifice anything. You see, our lives are meant to reflect the light of God. You see, it, it's not like Jesus is saying, turn from these things and get, you know, he's not trying to pull you out of the world. Jesus, Jesus didn't say, I came to pull you out of the world. He said, I came to be the light of the world. I came to light those things up. I came to light your career up. I came to light your enjoyment of material things. And, 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 but but it, it, it's very different in how you approach these things now. You see, what happens when Jesus is your source of light, then everything that you do, you do for the glory of God. Everything you do for the glory of God. And then, and then the things that you have, the things that you have, you, you say, you know what? I'm so grateful for this. See, gratefulness is what flows out of a life that is looking to Jesus as the source of light. You're grateful for what you have. You see, when the things that you have are actually the source of light, we end up becoming incredibly ungrateful because you go on that vacation and the temperature just wasn't good enough. It wasn't nice and it rained, you know, or, you know, I paid all this money and it rained or, or I, I got a new pair of shoes and, then, and oh my, they're not as shiny as I thought that they were, right? I mean, when you're looking to that thing to be your source of light, it's never good enough. But when, when Jesus is your source of light and you see that everything that he's given you is a gift from him, then you're grateful for what you have. It changes your entire attitude. And now you're not having to sacrifice other people to, to fuel that fire. This is what Paul's getting at when he, he talks about how genuine repentance, genuine repentance results in good deeds. You see, what he's getting at ultimately is, you see, Christians don't just try to do what is right. Christians turn towards the true light. 
And when you turn towards the true light and you no longer have any need to sacrifice those around you in order to have light, you see, that'll change the way you treat other people. Why are we here today? What is Easter all about? It's about the very reasonable and true reality that Jesus is the light that doesn't burn out. We're going to end our service today with a baptism ceremony. You guys excited? Uh, What is baptism? Uh, Baptism is an incredibly powerful symbol of turning from darkness to light. This is our baptismal. You're going to see it right up here. You're going to watch people get baptized right here. Baptism is a powerful symbol of turning from darkness to light. What, what, what baptism does, the, the, the act of it actually reenacts the Easter story. It's sort of the idea. It reenacts the Easter story just as Jesus was crucified, buried, and rose from the grave. So also, when the person being baptized goes in, they are submerged into uh, the water, they are united with Christ in his death, and they are united with him in his resurrection. It's a powerful symbol of our union with Christ. It's a powerful way of saying, I die to myself, I die to all other sources of light, and I surrender myself completely to the one who is the light that doesn't burn out. And so here in just a minute, we're actually going to going to hear from the two people who are going to be baptized today, Jenna Dunn and Erica DiFilippo. They're going to share uh, with us. And I, but I want to let you know that if there's anybody else who wants to be baptized today, the, the pool is full. And we've got extra towels. And I would just want you to, to invite you to consider that. Now, uh, you, you might be thinking to yourself, um, Kevin, that's, that's crazy, right? You might be thinking to yourself, uh, Kevin, do you, do you hope to convince me so soon? Really, do you, do you hope to convince me to become a Christian so soon? And if that's what you're thinking, well, then you're in good company because that's exactly what King Agrippa says to Paul. King Agrippa says, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Paul replies, short time or long, I pray, God, that not only you, but all who are listening to me today may become what I am, except for these chains. I love it. I think there's a little bit of a sarcasm there. I could do without the chains. But that's my hope, yeah. But what we see in here, Paul realizes the turning to light, that there's a process involved, whether short or long. He realizes that there's, there's a process involved. Right? He realizes that it's a journey. In the spring of 1519, Cortez set out with a fleet of ships to come to Mexico. And it was a journey. And when they got to Mexico, they were there for several months. And then some of the people in his party uh, they decided to rebel, and they wanted to go back. They wanted to go home. And so this rebellion comes out, and you know what Cortez did? He scuttled the ships. He sunk the ships so nobody could go back. You see, baptism is a little bit like that. 
Becoming a Christian is a little bit like that. It's a process. And, and you, you, you may be, uh, I don't know where you are in, in the process. Uh, maybe you're sailing the other direction. I don't know. Maybe you're on your way there. Uh, I don't know. Maybe you're actually on shore. Maybe you've actually been living the Christian life for many years. Maybe you've, you've been there, but you've, you've never sunk the ships because, you see, there does come that moment in somebody's life where they, they say, this is it. There is no turning back. This is the moment when I say, I'm, I'm not going to turn to anything else. I'm not leaving that door open. I am giving myself entirely to this new way of life. And I want to invite you just to, just to consider that. I'm not, not trying to pressure anybody. It doesn't say here that Agrippa got baptized right there. Of course, we read earlier where the Ethiopian eunuch, he hears the gospel and he's like, there's water. Let's, I want to get baptized right now. And so maybe that's you. I don't know where that is. But I want you to consider that, that, that if not now, maybe later down the road, if you just want to talk with me about that after the service, I would love to talk with you about it. But if you are interested in being baptized, I just want to let you know that during offertory, if you want to go back, there's Felicia. Felicia, raise your hand back there. You can just go back there, and she'll just help you to walk through that process. But we would love to be able to do that if you uh, feel led. Why? Because Jesus is the light that doesn't burn out. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you for this Easter morning. We praise you that today is the day on which all of history hinges. This is the day in which we learn that there is indeed hope. This is the day in which we learn that the God who created this world desires to redeem this world. This is the day in which we are reminded that we can have the fullness of life. And so, God, <coughs> I pray for each person here. I pray that you might be working in their heart wherever they, wherever they are on that journey and that, they might be pulling, that you might be pulling them closer to you. I pray specifically now for Jenna and Erica. God, I lift them up to you. They are your precious children, and we praise you that today they're sinking the ships and saying, Jesus, you are what my life is for. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.